This is Smart Politics, and I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. Joined with me today is uh, Francine Dash, the boss here at PointCast, a uh, host of her own show, We the Voters. And we're going to discuss the last three pods in our series about Afghanistan. We're going we're gonna to sort of highlight the things that we found uh, interesting, things that we think make for sort of some good discussion points, sort of just provide a wrap up to the whole series. So, uh, Francine, thank you for being here. And as always, thank you for having me. So what were your, uh, you've listened to them, obviously. What were your thoughts? What did you find interesting? You know, what did you find things to sort of talk about? Well, let's start with show one. I was really intrigued by the history of a British rule in Afghanistan. It began basically in 1842. And I guess they were trying to position themselves, uh, create a stronghold against the Russian influence coming down from the north to protect their uh, investment, the East India Trading Company, primarily. Um, I, I, I've just been struck by um, the fact that even though they had control of the country and its foreign affairs, they never really made it a part of the British Empire, as it was called at that time. I yeah. thought it was pretty interesting. But they consigned people to fight in wars. How was right. that even? I don't even know how that was possible. Right. They wanted the... <laughs> They wanted the benefits of having a buffer zone between India and Russia, but they didn't invest in the country itself. They, right. It really was just an exploitative relationship, like completely. Yeah, it's more like a human shield. Yeah. Of, of I mean, people. <laughs> that's exactly what it was, which is really, you know, the history of colonialism is known. But when you talk about you're using the people as soldiers in your wars, they're, you're, you're drafting them. Right. Um, and you're using them, like you said, as a human shield. And it, it, it really puts into a different perspective just how exploitative the relationship actually was. It also reframes the resentment from the region. You know, from 1842, I'm sorry, from about 1839 to 1919, the Afghan people were uh, drafted into three major wars fought for the British Empire. And, you know, not to say that uh, being colonized brought some benefits, but the country really didn't receive any kind of uh, acknowledgement by, by the empire other than what it was used for. And um, I think that another thing that struck me is when they finally became weak enough to be kicked out, there was like all of these years of peace that came about. And I, I found that to be really interesting because uh, they were able to stabilize themselves for a while, albeit yeah. under a monarchy. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that we hear a lot is, well, could they do it? And th there's this 40 year stretch where it shows like, yes, maybe if they had kind of been left alone, mm -hmm. maybe they could do it. I mean, um, but even then, you know, the British withdraw and they leave this ticking time bomb behind because of when they left India, mm -hmm. they split it into India and Pakistan. And they knew what they were doing. They had been pitting the people against each other. And they knew that sort of Pakistan would, the Pakistan-Afghanistan relationship was a thorn for both of them mm -hmm. because of the sort of divisions that the British had made sure to amplify. Mm -hmm. And they left that behind. 
And, you know, that leads to what I mentioned with the the prime minister who didn't like his king because what he wanted was to conquer parts of Pakistan because the people of Pakistan culturally have a lot of similarities to the people in Afghanistan. Right, right. And, and that was going to lead me to another part. You have all of these colonial divisions or imperial divisions that really didn't divide the culture or the people truly or the tribal connections even. Yep. And I, I don't think even when we went in there, we had a clear sense of that we boundaries mean something for Westerners. It's a hard line in the sand, but it's something different in that part of the world. Yes. One of the most bizarre, unique things about the United States is that for largely geographical reasons, we are immune in a way that other countries aren't. Mm -hmm. You know, we we are protected by oceans on each east and west coast. We have Canada to the north, who's never been anything that would resemble a threat to us. And then we have Mexico to the south, which is also not a threat to us. So we're we're safe. But Afghanistan and Pakistan is just a mountainous region that's basically it's totally porous. It's Swiss cheese. They mm-hmm. they they can't keep people from moving across the border. There's no real attempt to. Mm-hmm. And so functionally the countries aren't really separate. Mm-hmm. People just flow from one to the other as we found out right. when we tried to chase the terrorists and we go well yeah they just me- they melt into the mountains well yeah <laughs> right that's right exactly what they've been doing to everybody for decades <laughs> exactly the proximity though is yep. unfortunate for afghanistan yep. you know with people using them as a staging ground yep. against whatever force offends them at the time oh absolutely right yeah i mean that's uh, you know Russia and China are getting along right now. Mm-hmm. The odds of great powers getting along forever basically never happens. So, you know, Russia doesn't want China to get too much influence. They want them to have enough influence to stabilize the country, mm-hmm. but not so much that it becomes more like China, mm-hmm. because then Russia will get mad. And China feels the same way about Russia. Iran feels the same way about uh, everybody. India doesn't want Pakistan to have a lot of influence in Afghanistan because India has its own problems with Pakistan. And so nobody really wants anyone to thrive. It's constantly (laughs) trying to keep your your friends, quote unquote, a little bit off balance. So they won't get the upper hand. Exactly. It seems. Yeah. And it's the people in Afghanistan who are constantly paying the price for this because nobody wants them to become close to anyone Mm -hmm. and nobody wants anyone to invest too much. and they're just constantly being pulled, like like on a map, like literally pulled in four different directions right. at the same time. Yeah. Um, and that is, a, that is a really, really difficult place for them to be in. Yeah, yeah. Also in show one, there were there were two names that stuck out to me. It was Muhammad Dawood Khan yeah. and Muhammad Omar. The story of these two men, Muhammad Dawood Khan, highly educated, relative, part of the monarchy or the ruling family who leads the coup that ultimately leads to, if you follow the history, leads to kind of the creation of Muhammad Omar and his efforts. Yes. You know, so I just found that that was very, very interesting to to have these series of of events lead to uh, with Mohammed Omar and what his founding, or at least of record, founding the Taliban yeah. and this religious unit. But I just, I thought that Mohammed Dua, is it, I'm saying the name correctly? Yeah, Dawood Khan. Da- Dawood uh, Khan. I thought that he had some sympathies towards 
the Taliban before they were the Taliban, the, the connections uh, to the yeah. land and to the people. I thought that that was what was causing some of the strife as well when he was trying to re- uh, yeah. recognize I, them. The shifting sympathies are a, are a big part of that history from you know the time he becomes prime minister to the time he orchestrates the coup and then the arrival of you know Mohammed Omar and the Taliban. There's just always allegiances are shifting. They're mm-hmm. moving a lot. Because he shifts from being focused solely on the Soviet to yep. moving away, yeah. offending some of the alliances that he created well, before. What he what he realized, you know, when he was trying to overthrow the, the, the king, mm-hmm. he was sort of mad that the king wasn't taking a more affirmative pro-Soviet Union stance. You know, mm-hmm. the, the king had tried to remain more or less independent. He had a lot of pressures. Mm-hmm. The Cold War, everyone was being pressured to pick a side, right. and he he won it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Daoud Khan thought, well, if if I was king, I would do it different. Well, and then you you become the leader, and you go, oh, oops, I re- I realized why he wasn't doing this. Maybe yeah. the king was right. Yeah, mm. <laughs> you realize that the Soviets are asking for uh, something you can't deliver. The level of allegiance and and control they want would right. make you disposable and that's probably what he realized when he orchestrated the coup was that the soviets aren't content to really ask for a little bit of influence they want it all Mm -hmm. and they want to sideline you Mm -hmm. so then he starts pulling away again well you got in bed with the devil and guess what right and welcomed them in and then created this mess. And for all right. intents, and, intents and purposes, Muhammad Omar's efforts were to help to clean up the mess that was left after the Russians were put out. Yep. So and the Muhammad Omar part, we had heard, I, I think you know, mm-hmm. I think everybody knows, we had heard these sort of discussions about did we create the Taliban? Mm-hmm. There's always been this discussion going on for years now. Right. And it, it was really, you know, we can drop a link uh, in, in the comment when we post this up. We can drop a link in notes if we want to. Mm-hmm. But, like, the existence of a contemporary, of, of a New York Times article from 1988. Mm-hmm. Like, this was not a recent discussion, guys. Mm-hmm. They acknowledged this in 1988. It's, it's right there. Right. I think like we you, definitely need to drop that. Yeah. Like, here. you can go read the article where the New York Times goes, it was Operation Cyclone. We spent a bunch of money and we were supporting the uh, Mujahideen. Like, it's right there in 1988. It's, it's, as, it's as clear as daylight. This isn't some rumor. Mm-hmm. We were giving money to this group, and then this group eventually became the Taliban. Like, I don't... Right. This isn't speculation. Right. Just go right. read the reporting from the late 80s. Right, or fighting over who picked the name is another right. issue. Right, it's, it's the efforts, the funding, the efforts that led to what we have right. today. Yeah. And when they started to pull away and wanted their own identity or an autonomy, that's when some of the strife happened yeah. around the whole uh, bin Laden issue. Exactly. Moving on the show, too. Yeah. The thing that struck me there was just you kept hitting us over and over again with the actual cost, the loss of life over and over again. 13,000 drone strikes over 20 years. Now, you did the math and came to about 650 strikes a year. Yep. I was thinking about, you know, during 4th of July, how annoying it is to hear the fireworks for that week leading up to it. But I couldn't imagine hearing that 650 times a year. I can't even handle fireworks. So I'm just wondering what type of 
toll, tra traumatic toll this wow. might have taken on on the people who had to live through it. There was, uh, I want to say from maybe around 2010, 2011, uh, there was a reporter who was taken, he was taken hostage in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and he was eventually moved to Pakistan, but he was taken hostage and he was there for, I think, two years. And when he got out, he wrote up a uh, report, a story about what it was like being a hostage. Now, I don't mention this in the show. There wasn't any room for it. But mm -hmm. what he says is that it was horrifying. But for two reasons. One, being a hostage is horrifying. He also mentions that the buzz of drones every day, he says it was, he says it was enough to drive you insane. He said, I can't imagine what it was like to live with this. He says, you don't realize that these drones are just there and they are buzzing and they are above all the time. And the people are terrified because they don't know where it's come from. They don't know who it's targeting. They don't know where it's going. It can strike at any moment, at any moment. And he says for two years, there was just a constant hum and buzz of drones all the time. He says, and we just... He says he's and it made him gain more sympathy for the people, not necessarily his captors, but mm -hmm. certainly for the people because right. they're living under this ever present cloud of, of drones. Right. Right. And so I wanted to really get across like the horror of unpunishable death and destruction mm -hmm. just. And this ha and this happened under four American administrations, yep. four presidents. So we can't slap one party or another, two Democrats, two Republicans. Yeah. It started with a Republican and ended with a Democrat. And the two guys in the middle promised drawdowns, you know. And, and here we are today with the sum oh. total of about at least 70,000 civilian deaths uh, on record. On record, right? you know. Yeah. Trump drew down the drone strikes in Afghanistan eventually. Mm -hmm. But most people don't think I know he actually ramped them up a lot in Somalia. Mm, interesting. Yeah. For reasons that. Left that part out. Yeah. That we just. It just metastasizes and spreads. Wow. So there was one year, like, I think there was like 250 drone strikes in Somalia over his four years, which was an increase of like seven, eight, ten times over what the other presidents had done. Wow. Be because the. The war on terror is not a war on a group or a person. It's a war on a concept. So you just chase the concept wherever it goes. He chased it into Somalia. So, yeah, it's like this big increase in, in, in drone strikes in other in other places. And, you know, it, it was most present in Afghanistan, but we there was a lot of drone strikes in Pakistan mm -hmm. and in places like Somalia and every other place. That has to have an effect that we just haven't develop the uh, emotional intelligence to truly measure. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd be interested in learning more about that. But another thing on our pullout from from Afghanistan, one of the things I noted, we were really the last of the international efforts still on the ground. I think the, the last one was 2014. I, ironically, the British, they pulled out. They, they supposedly left some people back to help with diplomacy. But we are the last. Yep to pull out. And I, I wonder if, you know, when the British were weakened or put out, um, the Afghanis did have stability. But this time around, when we left, 
there was no stability. And I'm curious as I compare those two over two different historical seasons, admittedly, what key elements might have been missing? And one of the things I came up with in my own mind is there's just no sense of there appears to be a lack of their own national identity. There is also, and I think for people in the U.S., this is really hard to imagine, but I came to this conclusion while I was doing this. Our 20-year war was more brutal than the British occupation. The British weren't targeting Afghanistan. They were using Afghanistan, mm -hmm. but they weren't like intentionally targeting the country. Mm -hmm. They were more concerned about, like I said, India. Mm -hmm. But like we were targeting Afghanistan. That's we, true. we weren't trying to exploit it. We were trying to destroy it. Like we have to be really clear again about what 20 years of drone strikes and 20 years of checkpoints. Like tell people, imagine going through your city and just having to stop at a checkpoint to prove that you belong in the place you're from. Imagine having to do that for 20 years. Right. Like an armed guard is like, hey, Francine, you need to go. Like you're going home from work and you have to stop at two checkpoints to prove that you can go from your job to your home that you've been living in for 20, 30, 40 years. And imagine knowing if I do anything wrong, this person could just kill me. We think we, we talk about the impunity of police shootings. Mm -hmm. If you think there's impunity that, the impunity of what happens in war is a whole, whole different, different level. ball game. Whole like, different ball game. I don't think Americans we're we're blessed to be insulated yep. from a lot of those issues. But I think sometimes that insulation makes us insensitive. It blinds us. Mm -hmm. We have never in our country's history, we are blessed and fortunate, we've never experienced what foreign war feels like. Mm -hmm. We've never been invaded by a foreign country. Mm -hmm. Europe knows. They did it twice. Mm -hmm. Like the rest of the world, Europe and China fought in the opium wars. Europe destroyed itself in two straight world wars. The rest of the world knows what it's like when other countries roll up and just level you. Mm -hmm. But we don't. And because we don't know it, it lets us do it to others. Yeah, yeah. Because we don't have the language to describe what it's like to be occupied by another country. Yeah, it's true. But that's like, true. after World Wars One and Two, you know, the British know. They know. They know mm -hmm. what it was like when London was raised mm -hmm. and firebombing. Right. Japan knows. Right. China knows. Yeah, that's Every not too far from their yeah their history, their ability to right to share that with future right. generations. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well. I want to move on to show three. Yeah. That's where you're really pointing out some things uh, that are a little disconcerting. But one of the things that, you know, it, it, it you helped me to understand, I knew the layout of the land, so to speak, on paper. Yep. And looking at it, you know, I see Iran, West, Pakistan, South, leading to India. I see uh, China over there, what is it, uh, kind of northeast. Yep. Did I say Iran west? Yeah. Then I see, of course, a couple of countries in between Russia, and then we go down past the Gulf, and we see Saudi Arabia. So yep. they're really in the middle of some really serious characters. Yes. And I wonder if it's just bad luck, and will they really even have an opportunity to grow? Because based on this, and based on the activity of the past and present, I think you're right. I think they might be invaded again. I think it is unlikely that they have an opportunity to flourish. I think at least flourish without other people bothering them. I, I, I don't see it. Um, 
like I mentioned, Russia and China aren't likely to stay at peace forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Iran has their own complicated relationship with everybody. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. <laughs> Saudi Arabia has their own complicated relationships with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. No one is going to let other countries take over Afghanistan or let them incorporate it into their global empire because, you know, just like how China but what, doesn't But what could be anyone, the harm of them becoming their own self rule, have their own autonomy? What would be the harm? The threat isn't autonomy, right? The threat is that they would ally themselves with somebody else. That's the assumption, that they were, you know, right. connect with someone we might not like or right. someone someone else might right. not like. That's the assumption. But what is it that they have to offer or what is it that we have to gain by constantly using this part of the world as a staging ground against other countries? I, I Outside well, of location. There's nothing to gain. I mean, that's what's so perverse about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like... By using it as a staging ground, you guarantee the instability that will make you want to invade it one day. But you're so afraid that if they were stable, they would ally themselves with somebody else. And so they just don't do either. They never fully invade them and conquer them. They don't They don't ever conquer and subdue the country. Mm-hmm. But they also don't let it be independent enough to flourish. It's just permanently in this gray zone for you know, but this is the story of big countries and big empires, right? Yeah. Russia, the Soviet Union had their border, the Eastern Bloc. Mm-hmm. That was their border between them and Europe. Mm-hmm. They didn't want the Eastern Bloc to flourish. They also didn't want Europe to take it over. Mm-hmm. China does the same thing with like North and South Korea, mm-hmm. right? They get a little squirrely because we're in South Korea. They obviously don't like this. They like having Korea as a border. Mm-hmm. We feel the same way about South America and Mexico. If China was to like roll up in Venezuela, we would be very put out about this. Like just if, a tad. <laughs> we were, the whole Russia, yeah. Cuba. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We yeah. Would, exactly. I mean, this is the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Like right. they were knocking a little too close to our to our borders, and we we're like, eh, yeah, we don't yeah. want that. But we also don't want Cuba to flourish. We just. Don't well, want that's you to the have sad it. thing. That's the sad thing about warfare that I don't think us regular everyday people understand. In order for us to continue to be blessed, that means somebody somewhere else is being disenfranchised. And I right. want to end on my last point for me, that technology piece really scares me that I can fire a gun from wherever and kill people in a totally different. I mean, we're making war so much more comfortable and and we are separating ourselves from the consequences even more. Yes. Uh, the part about the future of war makes me deeply apprehensive. Really just kind of, it's mind-boggling. The Israel story, it's so difficult to wrap your head around. Right. I it mean, when, it, when the assassination initially happened, Iran... I read this. They they kind of knew what had happened, but they put out this story that it was like a real assassin because it was kind of embarrassing. That's what I yeah to admit so that like a robot. I heard the two different versions that were put out. There was another version, kind of admitting to the truth after yeah. the fact, but I don't understand the rationale, but probably the embarrassment. Yeah, but I think that the from where I sit, the fact that the world was in a little bit more concerned 
I mean, yeah, is is probably what's more troubling and that we ourselves are investing so heavily. Oh, I mean, you know, I read about the technology that's being developed. I mentioned the piece, but it's the stuff coming over the horizon, the stuff coming for the next 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know if people have fully grappled with the ethical, moral questions. Right, of, of like, right. again, drones do not respect borders at all. Right. They don't. They don't care. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a make-believe line on a map, and we don't have to respect it anymore. Mm-hmm. We can fly wherever we want to fly, and we can kill whoever we want to so kill. So there's no airspace regulations when it comes to drones? I mean, when it comes to military stuff, like, no one— They're, they're, they're too small to uh, effectively shoot down with countermeasures mm-hmm. because they're, they're too small. They move too quick. They fly too low. Mm-hmm. So we have yet to develop effective countermeasures for them. Mm-hmm. And these things are now armed with, you know, uh, multiple loads of Hellfire missiles. They're able to targeted assassinations and precision strikes, you know, hit a building on a block. And you go, so what can you do in a world where a person can just sit in a chair like two people? Because right now I think it's still two. It's a two person team. Mm -hmm. But they're trying to reduce it to one to make it more efficient. So we're only one person. You know, they, they change the controls to look more like. Uh, controller, right. game controllers, Video, game like more user accessible. <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, so we have these user accessible drones that don't have any respect right. for your boundaries. Right. There's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. You can't kill the person controlling the drone. Mm-hmm. You can't stop or shoot down the drone. You don't know where the they are necessarily. You can't track that down right away. Right. Right. As I mentioned to you, I'm, I've currently been reading, it's probably because of general stuff, but just in, to prepare this part of the story, I've been reading about Oppenheimer and the uh, yes. development of the atomic bomb. Right. And the question of like, should we? It came really late in the process. Right. Like, it was after the. Yeah. Right. It was like at the last minute, they were like, wait, are we doing a good thing? If you have to ask the question. Right. And they never really grappled with, you know, they were concerned about we're going to end great war. Power. We're going to end power. Uh, struggles between great power. We're going to end no more World War III. Mm-hmm. They never grappled with the question of like, in a world where Germany has the atomic bomb, would you ever invade to stop the Holocaust? Right. They were right. so concerned with stopping the war that they never asked the other question, which was like, well, well, wait, like well, you, you had to invade Germany to stop the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So in a, we've talked about this with the Uyghurs. Right. You, you can't invade China. There's a, Right, exactly. <laughs> they have a thermonuclear arsenal that would overwhelm. We've just now developed the ability to shoot down thermonuclear warheads. We just now, in like last few years, have developed the ability to stop like one or two. Mm-hmm. They have hundreds. They would overwhelm your defenses. They can be anywhere on the planet Earth in mm-hmm. 30 minutes. That's how fast the thermonuclear missiles are. So yeah, you can launch a thermonuclear scary. strike anywhere on Earth, and it can hit within 30 minutes, and there's almost nothing you can do. Wow. But what that means is, you can't invade China to stop what's happening to the Uyghurs because of the very real fear that they could annihilate like four dozen American cities in 30 minutes. Retaliation. Well, you know, that's what all of this technology led me to. I mean, exactly. it seems like we're setting ourselves up for the next 9-11. Yes. Because ultimately what we create finds its way to the hands of those who Absolutely. Yeah. don't like and, us. So. You know, as we, we talk about, again, I didn't get into this in the show, but I'm happy we're having this discussion, right? So... We were developing more powerful AIs 
to do everything from Facebook to manage your calendar. Mm-hmm. Well, the military is also developing more powerful AIs too. Like, so the story, like the full crazy tech stuff of what Israel did is like, they had to develop the AI to adjust for like a one and a half second lag between the time the person hit the button in Israel and the time the machine gun was fired. There was like a one and a half second lag. So they had to design the AI to compensate for lag because the target will be in a very slightly different position in one and a half seconds. So they had to accommodate for all of these different things. And they, they designed the AI to do all of that. And because Iran is not a nuclear power and Israel is, there's nothing Iran can do. Now I'm not trying to say Iran are good guys. Mm -hmm. No, we're not certainly trying to pick right. sides here, but for the issue of discuss, discussing right. the science behind war and the why that why we're going in the moral right. discussions, right. So right? Leading in the from 2008 to 2012, 2013, I think Israel assassinated like five or six Iranian scientists. They stopped when the nuclear deal was put in place, mm-hmm. and then when that fell apart. They maybe have started Started it back up again. again. So they've assassinated six Iranian scientists. These are civilian, military, whatever. But But to those families, they murdered them. Right. These aren't combatants. They're not out there fighting. They're not out there shooting at Israel. Mm -hmm. These are, you know, we have scientists who work for the military too. Mm -hmm. They're not combatants. They're not soldiers. Mm -hmm. And they've assassinated them now using AI Backed by the fact that Israel has a nuke and there's nothing Iran can do because what are you going to do? Invade Israel? They'll blow Tehran off the map in 30 minutes. Tehran will be wiped out. And forget 30. But how close you are, it's a 10-minute strike. Tehran will cease to exist in 10 minutes. And in a world where you can't stop their AI assassins and you can't retaliate for what is pretty clearly like this is an act of war under any... A hundred years ago, assassinating our scientists is pretty clearly, this is war. Right. <laughs> but what, what do you do now? Well, it certainly changes things. And it does. It changes things, it, right. we, we probably do need to have more of a moral discussion around Yes, that. we do. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you for inviting me in. No, thank you. Really... Thank you for being here. I'm happy we were able to expand on, on some of what was covered. Um, the war in Afghanistan was... I think when we look back, it, it, it'll loom bigger in the in, in, in the background because we'll we'll realize how much it changed. Um, you know, that's often the case, right? Is historical events grow larger mm-hmm. because you realize this led to that, led to that, led to that. Mm-hmm. And I think we will probably feel the same about it uh, in fifteen or twenty years. I don't think it's going to recede. I think we're going to realize we ushered in a, an era of stuff and we're going to go, oh boy, like what did we do? Sort of the Pandora's box. We're going to go, what, what, did we, what did we open up here? And I do think the part about warfare is going to be the part where we really are going to have some really hard uh, conversations in 15 or 20 years about war. So, uh, But yeah, so thank you for joining me. Um, this wraps up our our series on Afghanistan. So I, I hope you guys have taken a lot away from it. I hope you, uh, if you haven't, go back, listen to every episode um, because it's an important time for American history and it's important that we sort of start processing now uh, instead of waiting 30, 40, 50 years. So uh, join me on my next uh, episode of 
Smart Politics. Tune into Pointcast. We have a bunch of different podcasts. Like I said, Francine, my my guest for this one, she's the host of uh, We the Voters. But we have a number of, of interesting podcasts. We have Recap. We have uh, Smart Money. So uh, yeah, join us for uh, next time on Smart Politics and listen to more of our pods on our Pointcast network. I'm Anthony Arnold, and thank you. <laughs>